A quick note before the episode begins. This conversation involves graphic discussions related to abortion and the abortion industry. Please consider turning off the episode if children are present and continue listening with caution. Well, abortion is sold as a concept, I think, to the American public. And it's an abstract concept. I think if the public could see an abortion through my eyes and see the reality of it, the polling that you would see would dramatically increase toward uh, opposition to abortion. Uh, I can't imagine people seeing an abortion, seeing what happens during an abortion, not being appalled and that the statistics that you read about supporting abortion would be vastly different if people could see the reality and it became more than just an abstract concept to them. Dr. Steve Hammond didn't just support abortion. He performed abortions. And he didn't just perform abortions. He was good at performing abortions. Steve aborted babies as his day job and as a side hustle for extra money on nights and weekends. He took pride in his skill and efficiency. Until one day, after having taken the lives of some 700 babies, when Steve stopped an abortion midway through because of an unmistakable feeling. Not just an emotional feeling, but a physical feeling. The baby kicked his instruments. Right now, I would strongly recommend you go to hallow.com slash choose life, because today's world is a scary one. Too many people don't seem to care about the truth. And I would suggest that that's all rooted in people becoming less or really just anti-religious. That's why it's more important than ever to keep our relationship with God strong. Hallow is the number one Christian prayer app in the United States. It's like Calm or Headspace but rooted in Catholic faith. It is the perfect resource to deepen your relationship with God and find peace through audio-guided prayer and meditation. Several of Hallow's meditations encourage you to choose life and to pray for others to choose life, such as their Litany for Life with Lila Rose. Hallow is free to download. It will help you find peace and calm throughout your day. So do it. Do it right now. Download the app for free at hallow.com slash choose life. That is hallow.com slash choose life. And now, Dr. Hammond. My name is Steve Hammond, and I'm a medical doctor. I've been in practice for 43 years. Um, my specialty is obstetrics and gynecology. And during my career, I've delivered over 4,000 babies and Early in my career, I was an abortionist. I performed over 700 abortions. Um, and a story, all, every story has a beginning. I was raised in a, uh, a Christian family. I was in the middle of five children. We were really spread out. 
Um, I always, even in my earliest time, I, as a five-year-old, I can remember wanting to be a physician, and I don't know where that came from, actually. Nobody in my family uh, was involved in medicine at all. My dad was assistant manager of a cotton mill. Um, and I could tell you that uh, my mother was the spiritual leader of our house. If you ever looked at uh, Father Knows Best reruns or whatever, that's kind of the way our family was. My mother was the spiritual leader of our house and introduced me to Jesus uh, as a four-year-old. And Trying to teach a four-year-old about sin, salvation, and need for us the Savior is really a difficult task because I can tell you, as a four-year-old, I was just interested in playing in the dirt. <laughs> that was uh, really a, a concept way beyond my ability to understand. But she told me, uh, I'll give you an example. She said, um, you know, we've got a big yard, Steve, and you like to play in the dirt. You can play uh, in the yard, but don't leave the yard without your dad or me with you because it's dangerous. Well, probably about a week or two after that, I followed my older brother uh, to visit some friends. And when I got back home, there was my mother waiting for me with a switch. And she taught me the first two multisyllable words that I can remember. You deliberately disobeyed me. And that really uh, exemplifies, I think, uh, the boundaries that true freedom has. We, we are free to do uh, so much in life, but there are boundaries to our freedom. And as Christians, we recognize that. Well, uh, as time goes on, uh, testosterone and uh, peer pressure and uh, the world started changing me, I guess you would say. By the time I got to college in the 60s, um, it was the sexual revolution. Um, it was a time of challenging authority that we had been raised with. And when you say uh, freedom to someone in the 60s, they would um, think that that's freedom comes without boundaries. What they were really looking for was autonomy. Autonomy is a much different thing. Uh, autonomy is a law unto oneself. And you can see how that's really flowed into our culture today. But um, I bought into this, and, and um, part of what that entails is what we call moral relativism. And I, I can remember the, uh, one of the things we would always say in those days, well, that might be wrong for you to do, but it's um, for me to do, excuse me. It might be wrong for me to do, but um, it's okay if you think it's okay. So that, that moral relativism started creeping in. And this really laid the foundation for how when I became uh, a physician later that um, I was swayed by the argument that came about. Now, Roe versus Wade came about when I was halfway through medical school. And there, there was really no 24-7 news in those days. We uh, really were insulated from that. Um, we learned about the Roe versus Wade being passed down by the Supreme Court through our professors. And in those days, the professors were, um, uh, our, my professors at least, were uh, encouraging us to, uh, to think about this and, and that it was important for women's health and, and for women to be able to choose um, to uh, have their babies or not. 
And so uh, it was a concept that I bought into. I think part of that moral relativism flowed from my past into this. But until I became a resident in obstetrics and gynecology, it really didn't uh, impact me that much. Uh, I can remember during medical school, some of my uh, uh, fellow students um, believed that abortion was murder. And I thought, they're just religious fanatics, Jesus freaks. We had all kind of monikers we would put on them. So fast forward, um, I went into obstetrics and gynecology, mainly in medical school. It was the first hands-on experience I had, and, and seeing new life being born was fascinating to me. And so I chose to uh, pursue a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, as I mentioned, Roe versus Wade was passed down halfway through medical school. That was in 1973. I got married later that year, and we went to the Medical College of Georgia for my residency. Um, the fourth month of my residency was a uh, in, in um, Planned Parenthood rotation. And during that Planned Parenthood rotation, that's when I was first introduced to the actual abortion procedure. Um, I could have opted out, um, but I chose not to. Um, and I witnessed my first abortion. And then hands-on, I started doing them. Um, I actually became good at it. I guess uh, as a young physician, you gravitate towards something that you are you feel good about. And uh, I did. I became very uh, proficient at it. And it shortly evolved from uh, just doing them on the rotation to uh, because I was good at it. Um, Planned Parenthood uh, actually hired me to do abortions uh, for moonlighting. And um, so I started doing them. And over the course of the next year and a half, um, doing abortions at Planned Parenthood on weekends. And then we started traveling to other cities to do them as well. That went on for about a year and a half. And um, it all came to a, a halt on a Saturday morning. I remember it so well. I was doing abortions. Um, we would do 20, 25 abortions on a Saturday morning. And the last patient of that day was a little 16-year-old. And usually when we do an abortion, um, up to, and we were only doing them up to about 13 weeks at that time, uh, there's only a tablespoon, maybe three or four tablespoons of amniotic fluid that come out when we uh, do the procedure. This was different. Uh, there was probably a quart, maybe a quart and a half of amniotic fluid that came out uh, as I was doing it. And uh, then the, and there was a lot of blood. And then it happened, um, the event that changed everything. Uh, the baby kicked me. Now, you might think, here I was doing abortions for a year and a half, and I would see the products that I was pulling out of the uterus, the broken limbs, the torsos, the, the head, all the pieces of those babies, and that didn't really move me. It didn't change my mind, but when, when I felt the baby kick me, it changed everything. You see, we didn't have real-time ultrasound back in those days. We were um, uh, 
flying blindly, you might say. I mean, we could hear the baby's heartbeat but with a Doppler ultrasound, but we didn't have real-time ultrasound to actually see the baby in utero. When I was kicked, though, it brought everything to a uh, realization that there was something going on. I was taking a life. And actually, when I examined the patient more closely, she was about five months pregnant. And she had to be transported to the hospital, and that baby had to be dismembered and removed in pieces. Now, that was the last abortion I ever did, uh, but philosophically, I was still pro-choice. I guess you might say I would refer them to someone else to do. I just couldn't do them myself. Well, that transition um, took place, I guess, if you'd have to fast forward another five years, um, I was out of residency and private practice. My wife and I had already had two children, and uh, our third child was born under some unique circumstances. Um, she went into preterm labor at 26 weeks. That was 1982, and uh, babies born at 26 weeks in 1982 uh, had about a 25% chance of survival. Um, we tried everything we could to stop the labor, but it, it was uh, impossible to do so. And so our third child was born at 26 weeks. He weighed two pounds and three ounces when he was born. And he was in the neonatal intensive care unit for about eight weeks. Um, it was then I think it really dawned on me watching the perinate, the neonatologist um, working around the clock to save my son's life, realizing that there were facilities already in our country that were aborting babies of that gestational age. And it was hard for me to reconcile that. And so I, I think philosophically at that point, um, I became what you might call pro-life. Um, I realized that abortion was taking a human life, and I couldn't reconcile that. Um, you might say the morality of that really hit home. Um, that was further bolstered about, I guess that was another seven years after that. I went on a retreat and uh, really was reintroduced to the Jesus that my mother had introduced me to when I was four years old. And I became really uh, hungry to read Scripture and find out exactly uh, how Scripture uh, t talks to us about um, God and why He created man, the plan He has for us, how He created us, and about new life. And and um, in the first, going back to the first chapter of Genesis, God said, "Let us create man in our own own image." And then in Exodus, and actually the next book of the Bible, there's an interesting passage there. They're, they're describing the, uh, the law of Moses and breaking it down basically to talk about how, uh, um, how the legal system would be set up. So if there were damages done, how that would be repaid and so forth. It got into some real minutia, but there was an interesting passage. It's uh, in Exodus 22. Two chapter of uh, verse twenty one, where two men are two men are fighting, and a pregnant woman uh, is a bystander and is accidentally injured. And it says, if 
if all goes well, then damages are to be paid. But if there's serious damage, and we can infer from that that um, that something happens to that newborn, then it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a life for a life. So it looks like, at least in that passage, that we're being introduced to the fact that intrauterine life is actually life. And we go to the first chapter of Jeremiah, and he tells Jeremiah, he said, you know, before you were conceived, I knew you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. So there, you know, the Bible is saying that God knows us even before we're, we're not just born, but before we're conceived. So there are numerous passages in the Bible um, that really brought to, to my mind the fact that not only is abortion taking a human life, but there's very good biblical uh, evidence that God breathes into us life at conception. And so if you look at it scientifically and study uh, when life begins, well, certainly at birth, it's no question about it. But if you trace that back all the way, there's not any logical point along the way that you can say that this transition actually happens unless you get back to conception. And there's a, a great deal of scientific evidence, I mean, basic biology about the chromosomes that uh, the DNA that's formed in a newborn, and we call it a zygote, when the sperm and the egg unite, that the uh, full complement of chromosomes that are unique to that individual are, are consummated or begun, and that the DNA uh, of that individual is different than any other individual has ever been on the face of this earth, unless it's a situation where they're identical twins. So that uh, unique identity is there from conception. So, thank you, thank you for sharing that story. Um, I, I want to jump back to some questions about the earlier part of your story. When you saw your first abortion, not not the first one you performed, but when you saw the first abortion, uh, what what was going through your mind, and what you know, what were you being, you know, was anyone telling you kind of like what to think or giving you a context for how to deal with kind of processing it, or what were you thinking about it? When I first was introduced to abortion as a resident, Dr. Bronstein, who was um, our, the medical director at Planned Parenthood, actually performed it. And I remember going through the, we call it the products of conception, the pieces of the baby that were removed, the arms and legs, the little arms and legs, and the torso, the head, all of that. Um, Really, I was separated from the fact that that was life because we really didn't have real-time ultrasound back then. We didn't weren't able to see the baby in utero like we are now. Um, but at the same time, it was pretty clear what we were looking at. Um, there were pieces of pieces of baby, little arms and legs. Um, I think this pregnancy was probably around 10 weeks or so. You can see fingers and toes and all the parts of the baby. And I guess you would say I looked at that as a, 
a, a pathologist would do an autopsy on uh, someone maybe that he had known or that was a member of his community. He separates himself from the fact that that body that's there was up and living and breathing and walking down the street maybe a week before. He doesn't really think about it as a living human being, but as something to be studied and uh, evaluated. And I guess that's how I would have described what I saw in my emotions as I looked at that was more intrigue and um, interest in um, the anatomy and emotionally I was really um, sold out to the fact that abortion was a necessary thing. I've been taught that in medical school that abortion was finally giving women a uh, an ability to um, end a pregnancy if it didn't uh, if it wasn't convenient or uh, if they had other reasons, we weren't to question that, but he gave them the freedom to do so. So I disconnected the fact that that was a life. We didn't have real-time ultrasound back then, um, so we didn't have the ability that we have now to be able to see the baby moving, the heartbeat in utero that we have today. So all I saw was the products of uh, what was in utero five minutes before alive, but I was not able to draw that context back then. So fast forward to the, uh, the abortion that the court of amniotic fluid and, and blood came out. Um, describe, describe what you're mentally going through in that moment. Is it still, is it still, um, is it still that kind of clinical, oh, this is, this is medically different or is there like a part of you that's like, you know, your heartbeat picks up and you're like, oh no, what's happening? You know, talk, talk us through that. So that last abortion that I did, um, as we were performing it, usually there's only a teaspoon or a tablespoon of amniotic fluid. And then the products of conception come through the what's what we call the baby products of conception came through the tubing. It was just a lot of amniotic fluid, a lot of blood, and then the baby kicked me. And it was only then when I examined the abdomen and realized that this pregnancy was much further along than I had anticipated. Um you know, that was the first time I think I ever really connected the fact that what I was doing was taking a human life. We didn't have the real-time ultrasound that you have now. At least it was in its infancy then. Um, so we didn't do ultrasounds before the abortion, and we relied only on our ability to estimate the gestational age. And if the patient was not accurate about their last menstrual period, we sometimes could be off. Or sometimes the patient uh, either didn't know or actually would misrepresent when their last menstrual period was. But in this case, I don't know what happened, but she was much further along than we had anticipated. 
Um, and um, the fact that the baby kicked me was the first connection that I had, I think, between what I was doing was taking a life. Um, because the pregnancies, the abortions I had previously done were much smaller, but she was further along, um, and uh, that made quite a, an imprint on me because I, I knew then that what I was doing was taking a, a life. It was clear. Um, I had a newborn at home at that time, and I knew what a kick was, and when I felt that um, and baby kicked me. It, it it really hit home. I think with a uh, the fact that I was taking a life. She had to be taken to the hospital and um, removed. The baby was removed in pieces and a gruesome procedure. That was the last abortion that I ever did. Um, I didn't become pro-life overnight. Um, it took a few years for that to happen, and my um, what what kind of what kind of system surrounded you? Because um, it you know you were you were kind of you were brought up through a system in Planned Parenthood you know, saw you as very valuable. Uh, tell me, tell me about that world. And, you know, were you in, were you in, you know, I, I assume that, you know, you know, they were, oh, you're, you're so great at what you do, you know, very encouraging of the, of the, you know, technical excellence. Um, tell me, tell me about that world and, and what was that environment like? As a resident, I um, rotated through Planned Parenthood and was introduced to the abortion procedure, and I quickly became quite proficient at it. And I think it was one of the first things as a resident that I was able to do proficiently by myself. Um this was a three years after uh, Roe versus Wade was passed, so we were um, the country was really starting to accept abortion. I think at that time, um, and I was separated really from the counseling of the patients. Uh, I was just a technician really at that time, um, but I, I became quite proficient at it and. Actually, I think over a year and a half doing abortions, I, I never had a major complication until the end. Um, even traveling to other cities and doing uh, abortions for money, I never had uh, a complication, which gave me pride, I guess, as a resident um, that, that I was able to do something myself. You know, a resident is in training and always has supervision, but this was something I was doing independently and uh, I might say <laughs> in a word proficiently um 
you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate uh, in discussion about Planned Parenthood and you know what their motives are, and a uh, lot of lot of arguments going back and forth from both sides. Um, did you feel? Did you feel that Planned Parenthood, at least while you were there, was really interested in doing a lot of abortions and, and kind of, you know, creating an environment where that was seen as kind of, you know, a really um, prominent procedure to to have women, you know, go through? Well, this was uh, 1976. and. Planned Parenthood um, did a lot of different things. They did annual physicals. They did um, contraceptive counseling. And uh, and they were also doing abortions. And abortions were done, I can't remember. I know they were done um, two or three times a week. We were also doing laparoscopic sterilizations. Um, abortion was only part of the process that was going on at Planned Parenthood, and I was actually not really involved in the counseling. I was a technician. Um, so I, as far as what was going on behind the scenes, I wasn't really aware of. Uh, but um, I, was, I was hired as a technician, actually, to perform abortions. Um, can you describe what happens in an abortion? Okay, an abortion procedure... Um, in the days that I was doing them, and it really hasn't changed very much over the years, is done as a, a one-step or two-step procedure. Usually, someone, a woman who is uh, early gestational age can be done um, in one step. That means one visit. Um, I'm, I've got a, a little uh, audiovisual here, I guess you might say. Um, this little gourd is the shape of about a seven-week-sized pregnant uterus. Uh, the uterus here, the cervix here. And the procedure is uh, done first by injecting a local anesthetic around the cervix. And this is the curette that we might use for a, an early pregnancy. This is a six-millimeter flexible curette. It's got some holes in the end here, and this connects to a suction tubing uh, on the other end. Once the cervix is anesthetized, dilators are used to force open the cervical opening. We call it the cervical os. The um, curette is then passed through the cervix, connected to a high-pressure suction on the other end. The suction is then rotated round and round until the bag of water that contains the pregnancy inside the uterus is ruptured. Once that happens, the membranes and the amniotic fluid uh, are trapped inside those little openings in the end of the tube. They're pulled out this way. And if the pregnancy is early, most of the baby is small enough to pass through these little fenestrations here, but a pregnancy of this size would the pregnancy would not be able to pass through that little opening. So at that point, we would use instruments to actually go in and pull the tissue out. Um, the sac would collapse. The pieces of the baby would be extracted. Sometimes parts of the baby would come through the 
tubing here. Uh, we have instruments that would go inside the uterus and pull the remaining uh, placenta and parts of the baby out. Now, all of this was collected in a uh, suction device. And after the procedure is done, the uterus would contract. Um, and um, the, the baby, the parts of the baby would actually collect in a in a bag in the in the suction device. And we would go through that to be sure all of the uh, parts of the baby had been removed. Because if something is left behind in the uterus, it sets up potential for infection that can lead to bleeding and death. Um, so that's the way an abortion is performed. Now, a two-step abortion, if the patient is further along and we need to <clears throat> dilate the cervix more uh, than just what I showed you there in, in the previous one, uh, laminaria tent can be inserted into the cervix. These are actually seaweed that absorbs moisture in the cervix overnight and will stretch the opening of the cervix large enough to get a curette that's larger than this one through. Um, so the patient would return the second day, uh, the curette would be passed through, then larger instruments could be passed into the uterus. And the baby, again, removed in pieces. Uh, those pieces have to be accounted for. Um, and as I was doing abortions in those days, I would look at the, um, the pieces of the baby more as a pathologist would look at a, a, an autopsy. There was obviously no life. Uh, it was intriguing to me, I guess you might say, as a resident. But we didn't have real-time ultrasound in those days, so we didn't see the baby moving, the heart beating, and so forth before we did the procedure. Um, we just saw what we removed and, uh, and, and making sure all the pieces of the baby were removed because if you leave... Uh, part of the placenta, part of the baby back in, inside the uterus, it, it's a, it will set up infection. The uterus will not contract properly. There's bleeding and so forth that will happen afterwards. That, um, so, um, and that's basically walking through the procedure. Yeah. Um, how is the, how are those forceps, how are those forceps used? Is that, is that what those this are called? Is a, um, this is a ring clamp, and it really is too big to pass through. But if the cervix were dilated more, we could actually pass that, this ring clamp inside the uterus. There's uh, teeth on the end of that that grasp tissue. Uh, and if, if we were able to show you this on this, we would pass this inside grasp tissue and pull. Uh, and he would pull out maybe a leg. You can go back, grasp again, pull out another leg or arm, the torso and the head, and bring out the pieces one at a time. This would be in a pregnancy that was 12, 13 weeks along, and you actually can see a lot of the anatomy of the baby at that time. The woman will experience uh, a variable amount of discomfort during that procedure. Um, many times when we did this, as we started, uh, patients would 
began crying and protesting. But once we had begun dilating the cervix and passing instruments into the uterus, it was too late to stop. Well, abortion is sold as a concept, I think, to the American public. And it's an abstract concept. I think if the public could see an abortion through my eyes and see the reality of it, the poll, polling that you would see would dramatically increase toward uh, opposition to abortion. Uh, I can't imagine people seeing an abortion seeing what happens during an abortion, not being appalled, and that the statistics that you read about supporting abortion would be vastly different if people could see the reality and it became more than just an abstract concept to them. When when someone finds out that you're pro-life um and if someone challenges you on that what do you what do you say to that person as a pro-life physician um i've been um in a position i think to share um the fact that i haven't always been pro-life um, I was a, uh, I, I was an abortionist. I performed abortions. Uh, I bought into the concept hook, line and sinker. I was, I was all for it. Um, so I think when someone wants to, uh, have a conversation with me about abortion, I can understand their point of view and where they're coming from, and uh, I'm patient with them because I understand that it took me a while to come to the grips with what I was doing and and uh, to develop the attitude toward life that I currently have. I didn't always have this attitude, and so... I guess you might say I'm I'm patient with um, with those that disagree with me. I, 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 I believe that we have to have a dialogue about it, and um, it, we we uh, will gain a lot more by having a reasonable dialogue than uh, than fighting over it. Is it emotional for you to think back on those days? And and explain explain for the audience why you get emotional when you think about that. Well, reliving my past abortion experiences does bring back a certain amount of emotional trauma. But as a believer, I know that Christ died for my sins, and I don't bear them anymore. I don't have the shame and the guilt anymore. And this is uh uh why I can talk about it, uh, not devoid of emotion. Certainly, I, I wish that I wish that I'd never been involved in it in the first place. But there's a story in the Bible about 
about Joseph and um, how he uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers. They were jealous of him when he was a little boy. And he was taken to Egypt. He became prime minister of Egypt. And during a famine later, this was many, many years later, um, his brothers went to Egypt to get food because there was a famine. And when he knew who they were, but they didn't recognize him at first. But when they did, they were terrified. They thought he was going to uh, he was going to take revenge on them. But he said something that that I think applies to my story as well, and that is, he's told them not to be afraid because they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so I guess what I would say is I destroyed 700 babies. That's true. Um, But I'm having an opportunity now to speak for those 700 babies that can't speak for themselves anymore. And um, so that's a really a privilege, I guess, that I have. And I know because Christ died for my abortion sins and all my other sins as well, that I can speak freely of it. I don't have the shame and the guilt anymore. And as I speak to those who are suffering from a past abortion or whatever, I can certainly identify with that and 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 console them and teach them that there is one source of forgiveness. Uh, abortion inflicts a spiritual wound. And I, as a surgeon, I've done thousands of surgical cases, and uh, we take a scalpel and we make an incision, we make a physical wound, and there's a proper way to uh, repair that wound, put sutures and uh, create hemostasis, use antibiotics when appropriate to make that wound heal properly. Abortion inflicts a spiritual wound. A spiritual wound can be denied. It can be repressed. Um, it can be, in, in our day, we see it celebrated, but it's a wound nonetheless. And it, and there's only one cure for that wound. I mean, people go to counseling and other things, but there's only one real way for that wound to be cured, and that's through Christ. Uh, and I've come to realize that. I understand that. The guilt and the shame that I should be bearing because of all the abortions that I did, Christ bore for me. He, he, he has... Uh, freed me from the guilt and the shame because he bore those sins uh, in his body. And uh, so I I bear them no more, and I'm free to talk about what I've done. Yes, it's emotional. Yes, do I wish I'd never done them? Yes, but in the greater picture, knowing that I've been forgiven and that I can speak to others about that forgiveness— And I know that, um, I've said this before, that those 700 babies can't speak for themselves anymore, but they're speaking through me. We have more from Dr. Steve Hammond coming up. First, though, be sure to text PRO-LIFE to 47581. 
Because as the country grapples with the aftermath of overturning Roe v. Wade, the pro-life movement has come under fire from far-left pro-abortion extremists. Not only have leftists firebombed and vandalized pro-life clinics in multiple states, but online pro-life groups have experienced mass censorship by Google, Facebook, TikTok, you name it. That's why Live Action has been working tirelessly to find ways to spread the truth about abortion and share resources with those who need it most without relying on biased big tech. If you want to join Live Action's Fight for Life, text PRO-LIFE to 47581 and opt in to receive updates from Live Action about their ongoing work to end abortion. Texting PRO-LIFE to 47581 means you won't be at the mercy of the big tech censors in the ongoing fight for life. At one point in your answer, you mentioned that you wished that you hadn't been a part of that. What Planned Parenthood was doing, what you did in your career. Um, can you maybe talk about how you hope that you know your story can perhaps impact or you know influence either other doctors or mothers, you know, to to not make the mistakes that that you made. Well, I'm often asked. Um... Do you wish you could turn back the clock and not have done the abortions you did? And part of me says, yes, I, I, I would be, uh, that would be great if I could have never had to experience that. But there's a lot of learning that goes along with our mistakes in life. And um, had I not gone through that, I would not be able to speak with with the authority that I think I can speak now, because um, now I can I can explain how Christ forgives us of the things that we do in this life, because He bore those sins. He didn't He didn't deserve them. Uh, he didn't deserve to die. With, for our sins, but he did. I tell you, it's more emotional for me to think about a positive impact that my story might have that Christ will use to change hearts and minds. That's what brings tears to my eyes rather than the tears of regret and remorse. So, to to that point, um, do you do you hope that your story, or that some portion of your story, might um, speak to a woman who doesn't know what to do and feels lost and feels unsupported, um, and that perhaps hearing your story, a baby's life might be saved. You know, I often encounter patients who are struggling with the, with what they call an unplanned pregnancy. Um, and I don't want to minimize the heartache that that, that that causes. It's not easy, particularly in a culture that uh, is so oriented towards self and uh, it, it sometimes it's hard to break through that that 
external um, emotional part of that. And I don't want to minimize that. But I have encountered so many patients who have, well, first, patients who've who've uh, gone on to deliver a baby in a difficult circumstance that in the end have looked back on it and and come back and told me that, you know, though that was a very difficult time in their life, they're so glad that they did what they did. Maybe they've given the baby up for adoption, or maybe they've overcome the demons that told them that they couldn't carry that pregnancy. Or, uh, and that's happened so many times. I've had the opportunity to discuss the whole the, this with patients um, uh, through the years. And um, then having to counsel patients who have had abortions and, and to tell them about the, uh, the saving grace that, that Christ brings, and it's the only healing that 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 can solve the pain of what they're experiencing. But it's so uh, it's so reliable because you know my story. You know, society should look at me as a uh, a mass murderer, but they don't because. Abortion is accepted by our society. But I know as a Christian that I have taken the lives of 700 babies that probably would have been parents and grandparents today. Uh, But I can stand here or sit here and discuss with you what I've done without the guilt and the shame that I really should bear, but I don't. Because of Christ has taken those, taken that burden away from me. I don't have the guilt and the shame, so I can, I can speak of it truthfully, but without a lot of emotion. Because truthfully, I don't have the guilt and the shame anymore. And that's what I would share with a woman who's struggling with the fact that she had an abortion. Uh, that that's where she needs to seek the forgiveness. Um, and, I, and a lot of people are not used to praying. Uh, maybe they don't even believe that there's a God that answers prayer, but let me assure you that he's there. And he, the one prayer he will answer is one that I did wrong. I have made mistakes. I And to feel the peace that comes from that forgiveness is something I can share and have shared with patients who are suffering with the the unwanted the unwanted or unplanned pregnancy that they had that they uh, ended with an abortion and they're having trouble coming to grips with it that that's the one solution to their the pain that they're experiencing. It's the one place. Secular counseling is a dead end unless it's tied to the forgiveness of Christ because ultimately that's where our forgiveness comes from. That's beautiful. Thank you.
I think the I think that we've covered beautifully or you've covered beautifully how your story helps people who are dealing with the grief of what they've done uh, and the guilt of what they've done. Can we focus for a moment on how your story can hopefully help, you know, prevent abortions and and save lives as well? Well, I went to medical school and residency, became a physician to heal and to help people. And these hands that were trained over 40 years ago to save lives, to heal the sick, I used them to destroy life. And through my faith in Christ, I know that he is using that for his glory. Um, and I guess the message that I would have for a woman who is in a difficult situation, and I don't want to say anything to diminish the fact that there isn't a lot of difficulty with a pregnancy that seems unplanned and and, and not at the proper time or uh, social situations have made it unbearable, I would say that anything that happens to us uh, is uh, not unplanned by God and that he is uh, able to redeem in his time what seems like an insurmountable mountain to climb, but it's not insurmountable. And I've seen so many times a woman who comes with a, uh, an intent to um, abort her baby, and it's hard to do the full amount of counseling I need to do in a 15-minute office visit. Um, so I've learned to sometimes encourage patients to uh, go to here in Jackson, we have our birth choice, which is a crisis pregnancy center where there are trained counselors to spend the kind of time with her and walk her through that. Many of the counselors themselves have faced difficult situations. Many of them have had abortions. Um, aborting the baby adds another layer of pain to what's already happening. And I think that's the ultimate uh, thing I would say to someone in that situation. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it looks like a good short-term solution. And that's the way counseling in an abortion center is usually directed. You have a problem, we can fix your problem. It's a short-term problem. Uh, once it's fixed, you can go on about your life, but the problem is it's like somebody who uh, goes off to war and comes back with PTSD. That spiritual wound is there, and it uh, compounds the pain of an unwanted pregnancy. It, uh, in, in my experience over the years, 
I've seen women 20, 25 years later still living with the, in many cases, guilt, remorse, always, shame, usually, of aborting their child. Um, many times this is suppressed or uh, locked in a room deep in the soul. Uh, the only problem is that room is not soundproof, I'll usually say. And uh, it, it, uh, is, it, it it's adding a layer of pain that the unwanted pregnancy has already laid. And my encouragement would be, it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's hard to see how not aborting that baby is the right choice when everything in our secular society and sometimes the advice of parents and boyfriends and sometimes spouses tell you the opposite. But in the end, after the pregnancy is over and looking back, I don't recall ever having a mother tell me she wished she had aborted her baby. Those that keep their baby, those that choose to give their baby up for adoption, I don't recall ever hearing someone say they wished they had aborted their baby. I do hear women who have aborted their baby tell me they wish they hadn't. How has how has the scientific and medical understanding of life, conception, what's happening in the womb, how has all that shifted or changed, or and has it shifted and changed since you know the seventies when Roe v. Wade became law? Well, a lot has changed since uh, um, I was a medical student and uh, Roe versus Wade was passed. I mean, let's look at technology first. There was no such thing as real-time ultrasound. We didn't see the baby in utero. We didn't see the heart beating. Um, we've learned so much from technology. Um, we didn't know a lot about the Genome Project, the um, ability to uh, understand uh, our um, DNA and how it expresses itself, much of that's come about uh, since Roe versus Wade came out. Um, it's, it's just impossible to go back to the time of 1973 with the understanding that uh, we had as a, uh, in medicine uh, and try to extrapolate that to today. Um, and it's one of the reasons that the uh, um, those that support abortion now are having such a difficult time convincing people, lay people, that uh, abortion, you know, in the beginning they called it a blob of tissue and they could basically, most lay people would, would, would not question that. Now, all you got to do is go on the Internet. You can see videos of seven-week 
uh, eight-week babies in utero with their heart beating, moving around. Uh, that wasn't available in 1973. Um, so, I mean, and most lay people see that. So now um, they're having to resort to changing the language. They're trying to sanitize the abortion procedure. Uh, they're um, changing how we speak of the baby growing in utero, uh, changing things to basically sanitize the uh, life of a growing baby in a, in a mother's womb so that abortion becomes more palatable. But I think that's a, it's going to fail. Um, the uh, stigma of abortion is becoming more and more real to the average layperson. And uh, you can change the language, but eventually the stigma will catch up with the language. And, uh, and I think more and more people are aware of what's happening in utero today uh, than they were in 73. And uh, there's certainly more sources for that kind of information to get out through the internet and television. I mean, there were about four channels when in 1973 on television, and that was about the extent of our ability to get information back then. And it's just exploded wildly since then. Can you just kind of quickly juxtapose, it could even be a, a quick list of, you know, some of the, medical understanding at the time versus medical understanding today, technology at the time, technology today, just so people can see kind of side by side, you know, oh, wow. It was kind of like, no wonder something like Roe v. Wade could happen because it was like the dark ages in terms of, you know, in terms of how, I mean, truly dark, like in terms of people not even being able to see into the womb, really. Well, Roe versus Wade was passed down in 1973 and, uh, to compare that with the knowledge and the technology we have today is uh, there's a huge difference. Um, we were flying blindly most of the time when we did abortions in 1976 when I was introduced to the procedure. Um, and I say blindly, the only thing we had to go on then was the last menstrual period and our physical examination. So we had to be pretty good at doing a physical exam, uh, a pelvic exam, to determine the uterine size. Um, now, of course, uh, ultrasound can de can determine uh, gestational age within a few days. Um, we see uh, incredible detail, incredible detail. Even as early as uh, ten to twelve weeks, we can see anomalies that that we that used to, we didn't notice or didn't know until birth. Um, so th there's been a huge change in that piece of technology for sure. Um, we were doing, uh, it was just starting then prenatal diagnosis. We were doing amniocentesis to check for things like Down syndrome uh, and other chromosomal defects back then. But when we did 
amniocentesis back then, we were flying blindly. We were sticking needles into, into the amniotic sac without really knowing where the placenta was, where the, where the baby was. Um, and now, of course, it's done under ultrasound guidance. Um, so um, abortion is a blind procedure when it was done, in, particularly when it was done in, in the 70s. That is, we didn't see what was going on. We passed a, a curette into the uterus, turn on the suction. Um, we get the amniotic fluid back. We pull the pieces of the baby out. It was all done basically blindly. Um, you know, they, some, some doctors today, when they do an abortion, will actually uh, have the ultrasound turned on and actually look at the baby in utero as they're making sure that their curette's in the right place and uh, watch the baby being destroyed uh, on ultrasound. Uh, molecular biology has changed. Uh, our our <clears throat> knowledge of uh, cell division, our knowledge of, um, of, of in vitro fertilization, the things we're able to accomplish that really we were not able to do in those days um, to provide a uh, chance for pregnancy for someone who's uh, a normal avenues of of pregnancy were, were blocked because of maybe tubal disease or other things. Now we're able to uh, fertilize those eggs in vitro, we call it, which means we do that in a test tube or a, in, a, in a laboratory and transplant those into the uterus. So we overcome that, that, that uh, barrier to conception for a lot of women. Um, things that we just take for granted today, there's so many of them that we didn't have in 73. So the laws that were passed in 1973, uh, even by <clears throat> later Supreme Court cases, have, have basically changed the, uh, the landscape of abortion in 73. The Supreme Court allowed the states to to control uh, abortion in the third trimester. So it was this breakdown of the third trimester, uh, the trimester system. And in the third trimester, the states were allowed to control or prohibit abortion uh, during that uh, time period. Uh, later cases, actually, uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Uh, that that gestational age was moved back, and they used the term viability. Um, now, viability means the baby would be able to survive outside the womb. We have other definitions for viability, uh, but that was the one that they were uh, looking at. In other words, if the baby were able to uh, to survive outside of the womb, uh, it was considered quote viable. Um, that 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 was the new standard by which um, states could control it. So, as time went on in the 19 years between the Roe versus Wade and Casey, 
that was actually that has actually changed. Um, that now the viability is now the standard, and in the recent um, uh, court pleading of um, Dobbs versus Jackson, uh, that term viability was used over and over and over by both sides in the debate. So even on a legal, from a legal standpoint, a lot has changed in the 49 years now since Roe was passed. Do you think that the law, has the law kept up with, with medicine in terms of, you know, the amount that we understand life now in the womb versus the laws that protect it or don't protect it? Is, is there a disconnect? Well, the laws have changed since 73 and then since 92 when the uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood uh, was was adjudicated. And I think that the law usually lags behind medical science. And, that, and, and the reason for that is it takes a while, I think, for things to filter down. But um, as we're you know, entered the 21st century now, and we understand more about about the science. You know, this is not. We're not even talking about the morality uh, issue. We're talking about the science, how it's progressed. Uh, you know, I suspect that in, in some ways the laws are going to have to have to change to keep pace with the science. And the pro-choice movement often accuses pro-life advocates of being anti-science. Can you respond to that? Well, um, as someone who's pro-life, uh, you hear the accusations that the pro-life movement is anti-science. And I think it, when you start hearing name-calling, you start realizing someone's losing the argument, so they have to resort to name-calling. Um, I think science is on the side of pro-life, actually. Um, there was a recent um, paper from, the, from ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, that um, was trying to clarify the, the abortion terminology. And I think having read that, I think the, the motive behind that is to try to destigmatize abortion and to dehumanize the baby in the womb and a, a stigma uh, is already attached to abortion because you can go online and see an abortion being done um, you can see for yourself by real-time ultrasound what's going on inside the womb so changing the language is not going to change the stigma in fact the opposite's true. The stigma eventually will uh, make the language have to change. Um, and I think that, uh, as we've discussed, the science of molecular biology, the science of genetics. Um, when I when I learned genetics in medical school, we were basically studying Mendelian genetics. It was very basic. And the things now that geneticists talk about are would have been totally unknown to 
someone in medical school in 1973 like I was. So there's been tremendous understanding of what's happening uh, on the molecular level. Um, and the science argument, this paper that ACOG came out with talking about how the four chambers of the heart are not really um, purposeful, I guess, maybe, but I'm using that word, not theirs, until 17 to 20 weeks when electron microscopy clearly shows the four chambers of the heart that are visible at six and a half to seven weeks. So um, eventually the science is going to win out, and science is not a static process. It's changing. Uh, uh, the, what we knew in 1973 as science, is some of it's been uh, left behind, and much of it has been learned since then. Just just so that, you know, we're not committing the same offense that the pro-choice movement often commits uh, in terms of kind of making baseless claims about, you know, what the other side, you know, believes or thinks or, you know, advocates for. What would you say is the, the strongest scientific argument that the, that the pro-choice movement uses and how do you respond to that? Well, I would say I th- think the... F- the strongest argument or the strongest um, statement that the pro-choice movement would say would be that pregnancy is going to interfere with your life for a time uh, if you have an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy. And uh, that certainly is true. It's going to be, a, it may be a rough few months. You may have to overcome family problems. You may have to overcome some serious social uh, hurdles. But I would say that these are all very short-sighted and very short-term problems, and that eventually what appears to be a a short-term problem uh, vanishes when we look at it from a a long-term perspective. So probably that would be the thing, and that's what they promote the most. Um, that's their counseling is, you have a problem, we have an answer. And the, the question that I would throw back is, is the answer you're providing creating even greater problem? What does the pro-choice movement typically mean when they, I mean, so, I mean, accusations are thrown all over the place, but what are they even talking about when they say that the pro-life movement is anti-science? Do you, do you know, or is it just an accusation? You know, as <clears throat> the pro-life movement is often characterized um, by those that support abortion as being anti-science, um, science is not static. <clears throat> um, it's almost as if it's used as a barrier to shield, to protect you from, from debate. Uh, science is uh, something that has changed. As we've, I've talked about the change in science or what is known to medical science over the past 49 years. 
science is ever evolving. Science is uh, not static. Um, we we learn we learn things that we uh, were that we thought were true forty nine years ago that are not, and we uh, learn new things that are uh, true that we didn't know forty nine years ago. Um, to to accuse someone of being anti science is a way of uh, I think indirectly. T- saying that they are trying to promote a a moral or a uh, religious philosophical view over science. And somehow in our secular society, that is accepted as a bona fide complaint. Uh, I don't think that's true. Um, and I think that the, those of us who are pro-life are... Uh, very much on the leading edge of science. We want to know what's happening at conception. Uh, I think the more and more we learn about uh, when life begins, the more science shines a light on the pro-life movement uh, favorably, I think. Pro-choice advocates often accuse pro-life advocates of being anti-woman. Can you address that? Yeah, we're the... um, a pro-life advocate is accused of being anti-woman. Uh, again, uh, we resort to name-calling because we don't sometimes want to appreciate what's what's really the truth. Uh, I've devoted my life to uh, a practice of medicine that's solely devoted to women, um, and I've, I hear their concerns. And I've watched the traumas of their lives as, in the case of abortion, lived with the guilt and pain and suffering, the depression, many times uh, drug use, alcohol abuse that can so often accompany that. And I don't think it's anti-woman to want to prevent someone having to go through that kind of suffering. Um, and I know the, the traumas that, that often accompany uh, the spiritual wounds that occur uh, after an abortion that, that um, the pro-life movement is actually trying to prevent. So I don't I don't think that it's fair to call someone who is uh, a pro-life advocate as being anti-woman uh, simply because we want to provide a balanced, at least a balanced approach to a decision that's life, possibly life-altering. You know, today's medicine, we talk a lot about informed consent. And informed consent is what a patient basically agrees, the educational process that a patient goes through before they consent to surgery or a medical procedure. And I think to, um, for an abortion particularly, informed consent is necessary. And uh, 
I think a, a pro-life a pro-life advocate is just simply asking that full informed consent be given to a woman before she makes this decision, and uh, that would probably uh, it would include ultrasound, show them what's happening, and a full disclosure of what may happen after an abortion. There, uh, there are several physical things that can happen after an abortion, uh, particularly after multiple abortions, future pregnancies, uh, resorting to, uh, uh, excuse me, future pregnancies uh, that can end in, in an incompetent cervix where the baby delivers early because the cervix dilates too soon. That's been shown to occur after abortion. There's, it's debated, but I think there's some really good possibility or really good in, information that particularly repeated abortions that are not followed by a normal full-term pregnancy within seven to 10 years can increase a woman's chance for breast cancer. And you hear this debated some and pro-life advocates are accused of uh, fear-mongering and other things about like that. And I think if we had an honest debate, I think you would find a, a pro-life advocate. I know at least for me personally, I, I won't, I want to hear both sides of any argument. I mean, like I said, I've said before, I, I was on the other side of the argument on pro-choice. Uh, I was a pro-choice advocate for years, and I was willing to listen to the other side. And I would ask anyone who is a pro-choice or favors abortion or abortion rights to at least consider listening uh, to a rational presentation of those that might disagree with them. I'd like to go into the turning point for you uh, one more time, specifically the more kind of emotional turning point when you saw doctors fighting to save the life of your second son, your third child. Um, can you can you go into that story in a little bit more depth? Well, I had uh, come to the conclusion uh, during my residency uh, that I couldn't do abortions anymore, but I was still struggling with the philosophical debate about unplanned pregnancies and whether or not abortion, at least I couldn't do them, but someone else might do them. So again, that piece of moral relativism came in, I guess, but uh, philosophically, I was still kind of in a um, in the wilderness a bit on that. Well, I came to uh, conflict, I guess, uh, or it came to a realization to me at least in uh, about five years later, uh, I was in private practice and my wife was pregnant with our third child. And at 26 weeks, um, we were, We'd gone out to eat and had come home, and she told me, she said, I feel a lot of pressure. I, this is the way I felt when I was full-term pregnant with the other two. So I had some exam gloves, and I checked her, and she was four centimeters dilated. 
it was only 26 weeks. In 1982, that was a, it was like a death sentence. So, uh, I was, and I wouldn't call that night, but one of my partners was, and I called him and I said, my wife's preterm labor. I called my mother and said, can you keep the other two kids? Paulette's in preterm labor. We've got to go to the hospital. So I got her in the car and we flew to the hospital and she started an IV and we uh, tried to suppress her labor for, uh, that was about nine or 10 o'clock at night. We tried all night long to suppress the labor. When uh, it was clear we were not going to be successful, she was too far into the labor process. We consulted with one of our pedi pediatric friends. And it was, the choice was whether to go to the City of Memphis Hospital or to the Baptist Hospital because we didn't have a NICU unit at that time. It was We had to go to Memphis. And he said, oh, they'll take better care of you at Baptist Hospital, private hospital. That baby's not going to survive anyway. That was his comment. So we did. We went there and uh, flew over in an ambulance. And uh, we're almost, she was almost ready to deliver when we got there. We went back to the delivery room and Matthew was born. He weighed two pounds and three ounces, 980 grams at birth and lost over the course of the next couple of weeks, lost down to one pound, 11 ounces. I don't know if you've ever seen a baby that premature, but the skin is almost translucent and uh, uh, he was lost in that big incubator. And I had struggled with this idea of, of being pro-choice, and I knew I couldn't do abortions anymore, but I, in second trimester, and, it, and this was in the second trimester, it was not even in the third trimester, abortions were being performed in the second trimester, uh, not in that facility, but it it was legal in some places in the United States. They were destroying babies that size. And, you know, we would go back and forth to Memphis and, and check on, on Matthew nearly every day for about two weeks, two months. And uh, it was more and more a struggle for me to to comprehend how babies his gestational age could be destroyed. And I think that's when I made the transition that, no, it's not just me being, not being able to do them anymore, but I became morally, I developed a moral rejection of the notion that abortion was uh, the decision to abort a baby was not a moral decision. It was a moral decision. And uh, 
fortunately, Matthew did well. He uh, he graduated from that NICU, and he is uh, he he overcame several milestones. One, the statistics in those days was about twenty five percent survival. Well, he survived. And about 25% of those babies had severe neurological defects and cognitive problems, and cerebral palsy, those kind of things. Matthew didn't have any of that. And uh, he's graduated with a degree in computer science and is a uh, very hardworking uh, IT specialist today. So we have a lot to be thankful for from that standpoint. But it was a turning point in my life, I think, that I'm realized that it was not only that I couldn't do them anymore, but I was morally opposed to them, to abortion. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story in more depth. Um, what are the, what are the risks of abortion for women? Cause I, you know, everyone talks about like the risks of women not getting abortions, you know, but you almost never hear about, well, what are the risks of an abortion? Well, and I'm off, <clears throat> we often in the debate talk about uh, the risk of, of an abortion. There are the immediate physical risks during the procedure itself. Uh, when the cervix is dilated, uh, there's a possibility of perforating the uterus. The, the uterus, uh, that's in a pregnant state is quite soft and passing the curette or a sound through the wall of the uterus is a very real risk. And if that happens, then um, there's all sorts of problems that you can get into bleeding. Uh, you can, if you don't recognize it, you can aspirate. And when you turn on the suction, you can pull intestines into the uh, uterus, um, uh, all manner of severe problems can happen. If the uterus, and, and a second problem would be if the uterus isn't completely emptied, if you leave behind fetal parts or fetal tissue, uh, uh, placental tissue, membranes, uh, bleeding, uh, infection, sometimes severe. You know, one of the things that's hard to track is uh, the post-abortion complications because many times these are not reported. If a patient comes to the emergency room with hemorrhage, and uh, we took care of many of these that uh, had an abortion or attempted abortion somewhere else, um, they would come in running fever, bleeding. Um, we might code that out as... Uh, something besides actually an abortion complication. So it may not even be ever registered as an, a complication. So many of the complications of abortion go unrecognized. Even maternal deaths um, uh, sometimes are not reported as abortion complications. If, For instance, if a, um, a woman has a uterine perforation that goes unrecognized and she's admitted to an emergency room somewhere else, uh, with with uh, catastrophic hemorrhage, um, it might be thought to be unrelated to the uh, to abortion. If she didn't uh, mention that she had had an abortion, uh, it might be uh, 
diagnosed as some other thing or signed off as some other reason for death. Uh, even the number of abortions that are uh, that are performed, uh, we have only a vague idea of that because many states don't are not required by the CDC to report the actual number of abortions, and it's not to the abortion facilities uh, best interest to report all of their complications. So uh, many times those go unreported. Uh, so there's hemorrhage, there's um, uh, surgical dam damage during a surgical abortion. And we haven't even touched on yeah, we haven't really we haven't really talked about medication induced abortion, and that's come about really since I was doing abortions. Uh, it involves taking uh, a drug uh, called Mifeprex, which is a um, an anti-progesterone. Progesterone is a very important hormone in early pregnancy, and Basically, the, the drug uh, uh, saturates the receptors and doesn't allow progesterone to have its effect. Basically, starves the baby of uh, its ability to absorb progesterone, and the uh, and usually results uh, prior to about seven weeks is about ninety percent effective by itself. So uh, there is a cocktail now. Uh, that adds a um, prostaglandin uh, cytotec, uh, which is taken 24, 48 hours later to cause uterine contractions to expel the dead baby. Um, so this is gaining popularity, and during the pandemic, it was when the, there was a problem with um, access to abortion clinics, uh, it was used more frequently. And I think uh, various reported uh, that variously reported that about 25% of abortions now are medication abortions. So if you take the medication prior to about seven weeks, it's probably about 90% effective. And that is 90% effective that it won't, that will cause a complete uh, expulsion of the whole pregnancy. Uh, the other 10% are going to wind up having to go through the surgical procedure of removing the products that we talked about earlier anyway. Uh, the further along you get, the higher the percentage of failure it is. So, Not to mention the side effects of the medication, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, severe cramping, heavy bleeding, hemorrhage, sometimes requiring hospitalization, transfusion. There have been several deaths associated with uh, the medication. Uh, there's a push to uh, allow these medications to be administered on, uh, by uh, without a doctor's visit, without an ultrasound, without a doctor's visit. And there are several problems with this. I'll, I'll talk about two or three of them. Uh, one is... If you don't do an ultrasound, you don't know whether or not the pregnancy is in the fallopian tube, which we call an ectopic pregnancy. In an ectopic pregnancy, the, the pregnancy actually implants in the fallopian tube and not in the uterus, and it can't 
grow much beyond seven or eight weeks there. It will rupture the tube. There will be internal hemorrhage. It can lead to death. Well, if the pregnancy is in the tube, the patient may not be aware of this and take the medication if she doesn't have an ultrasound that, that would rule out an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, she may bleed and cramp and think that she's passed her pregnancy when in reality the pregnancy is still growing in the fallopian tube and she's unaware of it and it could rupture and lead to death, actually. That's the first problem. The second problem is the issue of RH sensitization. We all know our blood types. <clears throat> we talk about your blood type being O positive or O negative, A positive. Everybody's familiar with that. Well, the positive or negative part of that is called uh, the, ro- the um, RH type. Now, women who are RH positive are, as a rule, not going to form antibodies against RH positive blood cells. But a woman who's RH negative, if she has a a pregnancy that's RH positive, the baby's RH positive blood cells can get into her circulation and stimulate an antibody response. And it's usually not a problem in that pregnancy. But if she's recognized RH positive blood cells and uh, her immune system may in the future recognize an RH positive baby as a foreign invader, so to speak, and those antibodies cross the placenta and actually attack the baby's red blood cell. So with that as a background, if a woman has an abortion or has an abortion or has uh, a medication-induced abortion and doesn't know her blood type, and she happens to be RH negative, and she successfully aborts the baby, but it's RH positive. The baby that she aborted was RH positive. She very well could form antibodies and in a, have difficulty in a future pregnancy because she will form antibodies against the baby's red blood cells or can. The antibodies cross the placenta and start attacking the baby's red blood cells in, in the uterus. Now, this is in a subsequent pregnancy. This, this one, she wants to be pregnant. Uh, this calls, this uh, leads to a condition called erythroblastosis fetalis, which basically results in a uh, uh, baby becoming anemic and having heart failure in utero. Uh, it has to be given intrauterine transfusions, which can be very dangerous. And in years past, before the advent of Rogam, which is now now given in those situations, if a woman uh, is pregnant and ha- is Rh negative, she's given Rogam to help basically vacuum up all of the baby's <laughs> red blood cells to prevent uh, a potential sensitization. Or if she has an abortion and she's Rh positive, she's given Rogam. Excuse me, if she's Rh negative, uh, she's given Rogam for that purpose. But if she takes the medication and she doesn't know her blood type, and most most of us don't know our blood type, um, there's a possibility she will will um, have this problem in a subsequent pregnancy. We we don't see that very often anymore. This erythroblastosis fetalis, we don't see that because of Rogam and how it's impacted so many pregnancies uh, in Rh negative women over the years. So 
But I'm afraid we're going to see a resurgence of that if we start relying on medication-induced abortions. Um, so those are a couple of problems that are, that are facing us as this becomes more uh, prevalent. You know, we pass off medication-induced abortion or chemical abortion is sometimes called as more private um, and less invasive and all of that. And if the woman is further along than she thinks she is and she takes it, she's going to wind up with a, having to have a DNC, having to have a surgical abortion anyway because she's not going to pass it um, or has a higher percentage of chance that she will not uh, complete her abortion. And I think the FDA recently has, has approved the prescription of the drug without a, a direct physician contact um, that this is going to become more widespread. And so when that happens, uh, there'll be more unintended consequences, I think, of the complications. So who was Dr. Bernard Nathanson and what did he admit later on in his life about the abortion movement? Dr. Bernard Nathanson was a, a practicing obstetrician gynecologist in the 50s and 60s. Uh, in his book, The Hand of God, he talks about aborting his own child. Bernard Nathanson was uh, one of the co-founders of NARAL, which is a National Abortion Rights Action League back in the late 60s. And the whole purpose there was to change the perception and the acceptance of abortion by the American public. Um, they, they had a, uh, a hurdle to overcome. Um, first, they um, claim that, you know, abortion is a medical procedure. It's not a moral procedure. Well, um, that's really a false dichotomy because you can ask most medical students today, and they'll tell you the first tenet of medicine is first do no harm. And that basically gets us to a moral argument. I mean, when... Um, Medicine loses its 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 view of what is morally right, and uh, then we've lost our way. So uh, when we take care of patients, we want to provide medical care that's in their best interest. We want to be uh, true to uh, moral tenets. I, I will tell you that I think. We are born as human beings. We are born with a sense of right and wrong. Uh, it's a nascent or, a, or just a budding sense of right and wrong. I know when I was short of my third birthday, my mother was pregnant with our with my younger brother, and so he was he's three years my junior, and so I couldn't have been three years old yet. I was two, and I remember having a dream that occurs to you just before you. You wake up in the morning. My mother was slumped in a chair in a very un, uncompromised, very compromised position, and smoking a cigarette. And my mother didn't smoke. And I, it was it was frightening to me. It was not her character at all. And I remember running in, waking up, and running into the living room. And my grandmother was there. Her mother. And they were talking, and I leaped in her arms, and I was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. I was too young to actually express what was going on, 
But I remember what she said. She said, Steve, what's gotten into you? Even at an age where I was too young to express or, or understand how to talk about good and evil, I understood it. And I think that's true of all of us. We understand good and evil. And I would say that if the average person could see abortion through my eyes just one time, just one time, that the polls would indicate a high percentage of the American public would oppose abortion, particularly for any reason. The second thing that uh, Dr. Nathanson and his group tried to uh, push was the number of women that would die annually if, if, um, from illegal abortions if, if uh, we didn't legalize them. The truth is 90% of the abortions that were performed in the United States before Roe versus Wade were done by qualified physicians in the first place. They weren't done in a back alley with a coat hanger. Uh, and the year before um, Roe versus Wade was handed down in 1972, I think the number of abortions in the United States was something like around 250. Abortion deaths was somewhere around 250. Uh, they were telling us that uh, if abortion was not legalized, uh, that 5,000, 10,000 women would die every year from illegal abortions. Well, I knew that was an exaggeration. Dr. Nathanson later said we knew that was a lie, but the greater good, from our perspective, was to uh, change the law, to change the perspective. And one of the things that we in the pro-life era are uh, accused of is being religious zealots. Well, again, when you're losing the argument, the first thing you do is you start calling the other, calling other person names. Um, well, I, you know, I make no bones about the fact that I'm zealous about my faith, but it's not my faith that I'm forcing on people. You know, Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. Following in his footsteps, I'm trying to uh, talk to people about the good news, but I'm not going to force you to believe that. I think there's compelling scientific and moral reasons to explain to you why I think pro-life, the pro-life position, is the right position. So I don't, I don't really have to resort to my Christian faith to do that, although I think my Christian faith informs the science and informs the moral underpinning of, of why I would uh, why I understand life the way it is. One of the things that um, I think that the pro-abortion uh, or the even the pro-choice movement, I guess, would do would be try to, to appeal to conservatives and liberals both, uh, that abortion is necessary to solve the social and um, overpopulation problems. Uh, You know, I've heard just recently that we have 10 million jobs in the United States that people are dying to fill right now. We don't have enough people to fill 
the the jobs that we have that are open right now. We've murdered 60 million babies over the last 49 years. And those many of them would have already had children too. So the number of people, the population that we would have, it would be, you know, we're, if we're just talking about the social aspects of this, devoid of the morality, we would have many more people in the, in the uh, system now, taxpayers paying taxes. You know, us baby boomers now are being phased out. I'm still practicing, but a lot of my contemporaries have, have retired. And a lot of people my age have retired. Most of them have. Um, so, you know, things like Social Security that was based on paying in enough to support us in our old age, uh, you know, that money's already been spent. So we're relying on a uh, population base to support that. And, and, and most experts now say it's going to fail in a few years. We're not going to be able to to keep paying those because we don't have enough people in the in the market. So I think the that falls flat on his face, um, uh, destroying a baby because uh, we don't think we can support it. When people have had children and uh, in in all in in times of war and poverty. Uh, having not choosing not to have children because you can't provide for them the luxuries that you have is, a, I think, unfortunately, a, a an American idea that is is a false idea. And so I, I would I would just basically say that uh, I'd be wary of anybody that says that we need abortion that we can justify killing babies in utero to solve poverty and, uh, and social problems. It certainly hasn't done that in the last 49 years. So these are the four uh, directions, the four lies, basically, that were perpetuated uh, by NARAL uh, that Dr. Nathanson later admitted um, or the lies that they that they used to to change the landscape. Uh, I think that uh, abortion has is going to have to if it, if we're going to change the landscape back uh, to respect for life again, it's going to be changing the hearts and minds of people, and uh, not necessarily changing the law, but changing hearts and minds and. Um, my prayer is that abortion will die a natural death. Beautiful. Last question as a bonus. Is the future pro-life? Is the future pro-life? Well, only God knows that. Um, and all we're uh, required to do is to uh, speak for those that can't speak for themselves. Um, and I think that's what we're called to do. Uh, to to, to be a voice for the voiceless, and and that's what I want to be. Uh, if it's a matter of convincing people of to be respectful for life, 
each of us has our part. And I hope that my words and my testimony will convince people of that, that, that uh, human life has dignity and a purpose, and that uh, abortion is wrong and it's, uh, in any of its forms, whether a surgical or medical abortion is wrong. It's morally wrong. Um, and that's the part that I play. And uh, I, I would hope that uh, abortion dies a natural death. I think probably what I w- would suspect would happen if we see a, a, a resolution of this with the recent um, Dobbs versus Jackson would be that uh, many states becoming pro-life outlawing abortion and others uh, perhaps continuing to uh, approve of it. Now, that's going to lead to some consequences of its own, people having to travel to get abortion. But I think it'll lead to more women deciding not to abort, uh, particularly in areas like we're in Tennessee right now. Tennessee has a... uh, as I understand it, has a trigger legislation that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, Tennessee will no longer allow abortions to occur. Now, will there be illegal abortions? Probably. Um, but I think what will happen is more women will choose life. And that over time, it's going to become more the default position than uh, abortion. I, I could. Uh, tell you about Poland. Uh, it was under the um, uh, under the influence of the uh, Soviet Empire or Soviet Union for forty five years, and abortions were uh, allowed um, uh, paid by the state, and they averaged about one hundred and fifty thousand abortions a year for those forty five years, and then. When they gain their independence and under the influence of uh, uh, Pope John Paul uh, in 1990, shortly thereafter, I think, uh, the law was changed and outlawed abortion. Well, all the predictions of of all the horrible things that would happen uh, did not come to pass. Um, Their uh, abortion rate dropped. Uh, I think by 1998, there were... uh, only 250-something abortions done in the entire country over the year. And what was remarkable about it was that their uh, uh, death rate, uh, the death rate, the perinatal death rate dropped by 30%. And their uh, miscarriage rate dropped by 25%, which is a little hard to explain, but what I think we take away from that is that women were healthier not aborting their babies and that stopping abortions didn't lead to increased criminality and deaths from abortions. All the things that we worry about didn't happen. So, you know, that was Poland's experience and I have no reason to believe it wouldn't be ours as well. The abortion industry uses women for their own profit. These lies are pervasive. They're not difficult to refute, but it can be difficult to penetrate that culture of lies to get the truth 
out there. We have to do it. We have to do it because it's right. We have to do it for the victims of abortion. We have to do it for the women who are taken in by this industry, who are used for dollars, even to their own detriment. If you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Steve Hammond, you'll want to check out our Daily Wire original documentary, Choosing Death, The Legacy of Roe. In it, we take a wrecking ball to the four fallacies keeping the abortion industry alive. To watch it right now, go to dailywireplus.com. Today, if you join, you will see not only this full movie, Choosing Death, The Legacy of Roe, but you will have access to The Daily Wire's entire catalog of content, which we can only produce and distribute because of you, with your support. I'm Michael Knowles. This is the Choosing Life Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Choosing Life Podcast is a Daily Wire production, produced in association with Outer Limits. Our technical and support team includes Ian Reed, Jesse Eastman, Ryan Moore, Mariah Cormier, and Jim Wirt. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Thanks for listening.